Would you please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word from Isaiah 55. I'm going to preach a sermon after this, but if you're only attentive to one thing, attend to this. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that He may have compassion on him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We'll get into the back half of that, perhaps a little bit later. We are going to the communion table. So if you think about how our service is structured, we, the sermon is after we've done the confession of sin and declaration of pardon, and before we're going to the communion table. So we hear that, the declaration of pardon, there's been an announcement that in Christ you are forgiven, free, and restored, right? So we don't hear the Scripture as a call to do better, We don't hear the Scripture preached as a threat. We hear it as words of life. Because we hear it from this position like, wait, I'm in Christ. I'm held firmly. And we've been reminded that Christ has given himself for me. And I've confessed my sins and uh, I've I've received this pardon that is in Jesus and I'm free to listen. And I'm moving toward the communion table, which then after the, the preacher preaches, Jesus preaches to us in the table, we say, by communicating his spiritual presence to us, pressing on us what he's done for us, looking forward to, to the time we will spend with him in eternity. So we are in this liminal position right now, anticipating the future, but hearing from the, the God of the present right here. When we go to the communion table, we're often reminded, too, that the Bible uses things like bread and wine and water, these things that fill us up, to communicate spiritual uh, needs and desires as well. And that's what this passage does. It picks up these images of rich uh, food and, and bread and wine to communicate spiritual sustenance, spiritual realities. Several years ago, when I was uh, newly married and visiting my wife's family, I noticed on their counter was a clear glass jar with the marrow bone dog treats. I always had a couple dogs, you know, the dog treats are round and they got bone marrow stuffed in the middle of it, I guess. Uh, It's good for dogs, they like them. Um, And on the front of the jar, there was a tape with big capital letters that said, Not Food which seems self-explanatory in that people who can read are not dogs. They would know it's not food. Uh, And I finally asked someone, why is that? And so it turns out that the story is something like this. When Grandpa would visit, he would kind of get up in the middle of the night and rummage around the kitchen for a snack. And in his 
sort of in the middle of the night, dazed stupor, would think those marrowbone dog treats looked like one of his favorite snacks called combos. Do you know what combos are? They're brown pretzels with cheese stuck in the middle of it. In Grandpa's defense, they do look a lot like marrowbone dog treats. It's the same shape, kind of same color palette, you know. Um, and so he would occasionally eat those, and it would not be good, apparently. Uh, they taste good to dogs, not, to, not to, to people. And then would go away and come back a few months later and forget that. So uh, the, the easy thing to do was just write on the front, not food. Not food. Very simple. You know, Grandpa, it looks like food. It looks like food to you. It's in the same place in the kitchen that other food is, right? But this is not the satisfaction you're looking for. It looks like it. it you know, uh, it's good. Those are good things if you're a dog. It's good for something else, just not designed to give us the sustenance that we would normally expect from food. The passage we are looking at this morning from, uh, from Isaiah 55 alerts us to a feature, or you may say a bug of humanity. Maybe it's a feature now in our fallen state. And that we are inclined to take things which are otherwise good, otherwise good, uh, uh, otherwise good supplements to our life that we may enjoy, and we are inclined to take those and move them into a primary position and seek a satisfaction from them they were never designed to give us. In fact, they cannot give us. We take those supplements and we substitute them for the source of life, seeking a satisfaction from them that they can't give us. And uh, in doing that, we both miss the satisfaction that could be ours, which is designed to come only from the Lord alone, and we take those things and we twist them a little bit. Every year about, too, we we bring out this passage from C.S. Lewis's uh, essay, The Weight of Glory, which is your pre-service reflection for today. Some of you have heard this so many times because you've been here for years that you can almost repeat it from memory. And if you can't repeat it from memory, just hold on. You eventually might be able to. Uh, and this is probably, for me, one of the, the top five most influential things I've ever read in my life, this entire essay from which this one paragraph comes. And I want to alert you to this paragraph. It's on the front of your worship booklet, the second paragraph. Lewis writes this. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Immanuel Kant was a philosopher. So he says, I submit that this notion that we shouldn't desire the good, our own good, is, has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What Lewis is saying is that you and me, everyone, is designed for desire. We're designed for satisfaction. And while these other things are not necessarily bad in themselves, he says uh, drink and sex and ambition, there's a a positive, obviously, uh, ambition is real dangerous, but obviously drink and sex, these are things God has made, and they can be used for good unless we are seeking satisfaction in them. And then it's like a kid, we're like a kid, far too easily pleased. Thinking, oh, more, more satisfaction here, more satisfaction here, when something else far better is offered to us. The creational design for this satisfaction is at a deepest level for us, for that satisfaction to be met in relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ in community. The creational design is that depth satisfaction to be met in relationship to God through Jesus in community. That's what we're made for. And that is this great place where it is our best good. I mean, it's the best satisfaction. It's what we're made for in God's highest glory. Because when we're saying God is my satisfaction, we're saying nothing else can satisfy because nothing else is as good as him. And when we actively say that and set our affection in that direction, that magnifies God. It glorifies him. And so just so I can put a finer point on it, what do I mean by satisfaction? Yeah, there's lots of things, but just a few things, right? In Christ, a sense of wholeness, of being loved, of complete acceptance, of cleansing from our sin, of being embraced by the God of the universe, of freedom, of a complete covering of our shame, a sense of significance and importance, a radical security, knowing that we have a place in this world and a a place in God's plan and a radical hope for the future and lots of other things. that's 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 just a few things, right, of this, what it means to be satisfied in Jesus. And the sort of the psychological, emotional, personal realities that kind of flow upward from that. And when that primary satisfaction is actually being met in Jesus, all those other good but secondary things, the supplements, can be enjoyed for what they are. Secondary good things. Even if they're super important things, right? Careers, marriages, children, our own health. Those are good things. But if they're treated as ultimate things, we will twist them. We will ask too much of them. They were never designed to give us that. And we will, like, we will try to squeeze too much life out of the relationship or the career or our own health or our own reputation. This is famously summed up by the quote from uh, John D. Rockefeller, the, the billionaire who owned like 1% of the American economy at one point when he was asked, you probably know this, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And he answered famously, just a little bit more. And we would say, well, that's ridiculous. He's a multi-billionaire. We say the same thing all the time for everything. I do. Just a little bit more. 
in landing the plane on this year-long survey of the Old Testament, we've been through, we've been in a long, it's been more than a year, actually. Um, we've been walked through the, all the historical books, and then we're stepping back for the last few weeks of the of this series, just saying, what were the, some of the things the prophets were saying? What were the image the prophets were giving to the people to sustain them, to give them hope in very hard times? Last week, we saw this, the picture of the suffering servant, the Messiah, in Isaiah 53. We heard it in our um, declaration of pardon. It's not in the insert, but just listen to this. If you are in Christ by faith, this is why you are completely and permanently safe and secure today, tomorrow, and every day, and every moment for eternity. Hear these words about you. Jesus, the suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Not might be healed, not could be healed, not may be healed someday. We are healed in Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every single one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is terrible and beautiful news all at the same time. And that defines your life and your security. And you may, if you're in Christ, you do, we don't know how secure we are because of that. We're asked to believe it and imagine we, we can't get there and the rest of our life we'll be kind of trying to move and press into that. And it doesn't matter if we can't get our hands around it. He's got our hands around us. He, he has secured us. We just kind of we move into that. This, so that's Isaiah 53. And then in Isaiah chapters 54 and 55 is a natural resulting vision that explodes out of that Isaiah 53 passage. We're looking at Isaiah 55 today. And that vision, when you go back there, it's like, wow, this new age of joy is going to dawn because of the Messiah. We get on this side of the cross, we realize, oh, that's Jesus. So what we can say, and I put it in your insert, big idea, because of the work of Messiah Jesus, we embrace a new vision of joy. It includes a, a vision of personal satisfaction, individual personal satisfaction, community, for lack of a better word, glory, and I'm going to tell you why that is in a second, and then confidence that we're in a story that just keeps expanding. So first of all, personal satisfaction. Verse 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in the rich in rich food. So again, he's using images of thirst and hunger to communicate spiritual longing. Now these images are something everybody does. Everybody thirsts. Everybody hungers. And that teaches us something very important. And that is this. Never ever do we have to create desire for the Lord in our own life. It may be misdirected, but it's already there. Never ever do we have to create the desire for the Lord and the desire that comes from the satisfaction that comes from relationship to Christ. We don't have to create that in other people. It's already there. Now, it's often misguided, misdirected, misapplied, twisted. Right? It's, laying some, it's landing somewhere else. But why does the ungodly politician crave power? Because he wants God. That's why. That's what he's made for. Now, it's twisted away. 
We're made to have a sense of significance and potency in this world, and, but as a son or daughter of God, when you're disconnected from that, you're like, well, maybe it's in this. And if you're really skilled and gifted at it, maybe you can do that and get that, and you taste a little bit and say, oh, more there, more there, more there. We can do the same thing with success in our career, right? Oh, a little success, ooh, that feels good. Maybe ultimate satisfaction is found in more. does the same thing. And these things get worked out in our own lives, right? We all have our own individual ways of taking that desire and twisting it. In the last generation, there was a well-known author named Francis Schaeffer. He's kind of an apologist and a writer, one of the founders, actually, of our denomination. He said if he had an hour to spend with someone to share the gospel with them, he would spend the first 55 minutes listening and asking questions about this. What do you long for? What do you desire? How are you pursuing that desire? Just to get a thorough sense of it. And then just spend the last five minutes saying, you know, good news, you're made for desire. Better news, Jesus is actually the foundation of everything you're seeking anyway. And when you get him, you can enjoy these other good things, and they don't have control over you. What is the pathway into this? Just very simple and straightforward from this text. First, there's a, a call. Come! And that's not, that's not a quiet invitation. It's like a command in, in Hebrew. Like it's an alert. Get up and move. Come. Get out of your seat and do something. It's meant to be interruptive, right? Everyone, like come, everyone. This is for me, and it's an ongoing reality. It's meant to communicate. Like on, come and keep coming. Why? Because we have this bent in ourselves that even if we taste this deep satisfaction in Christ, like we can wake up and functionally totally forget that. And just drift away, drift away, drift away. And we live in a world where everything is telling us, I will satisfy you. I will satisfy you. I mean, if you watch the Colts today, there's going to be a commercial, and the commercial will in some way, shape, or form, just watch them if you watch the Colts today. They are going to tell you, you don't have this, you need this, and if you have this, you will be satisfied. It's, every commercial is a gospel presentation. It really is. Saying we are a source of satisfaction. And the Christian says, aha, I know what you're doing there. We are built for satisfaction, but not from that. Come. And then ask, or really respond to a question. Ask yourself a question. The question the Lord asks us in verse 2, why do you spend money, your money, for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? I mean, it's one thing. It's one thing to eat the marrow bone dog treats if you think they're snacks, but when you know they're not snacks, why would you keep doing that? And so I, you can't tell tone from these texts, right? But it, I kind of wonder if the Lord's like, why do you guys do that? What's up? Why? <laughs> uh, he, I don't think he's probably doing that, but what the invitation here is to come to ourselves and recognize that we actually do have an inclination to substitute good things for sources of satisfaction. Here's, here's how we can ask, ascertain this a little bit. We ask questions like this. What do I fantasize about? What do I daydream about? I spend my time thinking about. What, is, what am I experiencing that's less satisfying than I thought it would be? What am I giving myself to that is actually taking life from me? Now, at this point, like I know my own life, I have no eyes to see this for myself. But you know who does? My wife. 
people close to us and who love us usually have a better insight on that question. What am I giving myself to that's taking life from me? If you don't have an answer for that and you have someone in your life who knows you and loves you, a good friend or a spouse or someone close to you, ask them and listen. Right? Part of the nature of these things that substitute themselves in our own life is they numb us to the fact that they're not satisfying. That's why we keep pursuing more and more and more. If it was satisfying, we wouldn't have to keep pursuing it. It would be like we'd get it delivered to us. What are you anxious about? Just acknowledge your anxiety and let's trace it back a little bit. What are we angry about? Acknowledge that anger, we trace it back a little bit. What are we losing sleep over? What have you told yourself or really hoped, like, if I just get this, then things will be different? If I just have this, then everything will be calm and I'll be okay. And we have to keep asking ourselves these questions because we're never immune from the danger. Years ago, I mean, like last millennium years ago, in our seminary book room when I was in grad school, I bought this Bible in the, in the, used, the used book space of our seminary for a couple bucks. And I've carried it around for years, partly because, uh, I mean, it's nice, it's hardback, it's a New American Standard, which I prefer, but because it was... It was uh, given by a friend of mine named, let's call his name Phil. I'm not going to go with his real full name because his kids are still in the area and everything. But Phil was a campus minister of a very large campus ministry at a large southern school. Very successful. When he came to campus, so he was a second career seminary student, about 40 years old when he came to campus. Everybody knew who he was. He was a gifted leader, gifted communicator. And in the back of this Bible, the only thing written was in the back here, Uh, He wrote, what God will bless as a supplement, he will curse as a substitute. Well, I wouldn't say it that way, but that's interesting. What God will bless as a supplement, he will curse as a substitute. And I thought, well, I don't know quite what that means. So I tracked him down on campus. I said, Phil, what is this? I bought your Bible. Um, And I noticed this is the only thing you have written in it. And thank you for not writing in the text. It's in the back of the Bible. I appreciate that. But what does that mean? And he said, I have had some measure of success, and I have learned that it's really good if you just receive it. But if you begin to grasp it, it becomes a curse to you. And I thought, that's good. I'll trust that. That's good. I want to learn that lesson that Phil learned. About five years later, Phil planted a church in a major Midwestern city, and it just went gangbusters. He's a great leader, great communicator. He planted that, got it going. A few years later, he moved to the suburb, a very wealthy suburb of Chicago where you just don't plant conservative Presbyterian churches because people are too sophisticated for that. And he planted the church, and it went gangbusters. He's a great communicator, a great leader, great speaker, godly man. So that success, to hear him tell it, that came to him as a good supplement, he began to grasp. A little bit, a little bit subtle. But in our little denomination, he was kind of famous. He was speaking at the conferences. He was writing the newsletters. He was writing the books. He was being interviewed. He was the one. And he he began to want that success, want that acclaim. And over time, began to grasp it and move it to the center and seek in it something it was never designed to give. And the fear of losing it 
and the anxiety about not about potentially going away and the desire to create more of it just created this anxious presence in him that led him down some very dark paths that ended in an FBI sting operation for solicitation. Phil lost the fame, well, he's infamous then. He lost the acclaim, he lost the church, lost his family, and eventually, 10 years later, lost his own life. Just, I think the stress just took him out very prematurely. But, um, and he would say, you know, after that, because things are so clear now, but the price was so high. I, subs- I, I didn't believe, I didn't, I didn't acknowledge what I wrote there. That it was a curse to myself because I took a supplement and made it a substitute. This, verse 2, is a gift to us. It's an alert. We are inclined to do this. Why do we spend money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? So we ask, right? And receive that as a warning. It's okay. The Bible loves us, so it gives us warnings, right? Don't do that. Be aware of our inclination. Look, as a pastor, let me tell you, Phil was a much better preacher than I'll ever be. Much better leader, much more successful, fruitful, everything. Like across the board, he's like a five-tool player. You better believe that. That's part of the reason I carry this Bible around with me still. None of us are any different than that. And so the last thing is listen. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. There's a message outside of us to take in. How do we come and buy the richest fare when we have no money? Somebody else bought it. Somebody else bought it for us. He says, come and get it. Of course, on this side of the cross, we know it's talking about Jesus and the life he lived and the death he died and his resurrection power. He says, would you come and trust me? Come and get this. Acknowledge your inclination and where we have been seeking satisfaction and other things, even good other things, and turn and say, Jesus, I repented that and I'm turning back to you. How does this happen? One Simple way is captured in John 7. Now, it did not occur to me in this, until this week. <laughs> I remember that he wrote this in his Bible. The last thing he wrote at the bottom was said, John 7, 37 to 39. What is John 7 to 37 to 39? It was right there for Phil. On the last and great day of the feast the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And just English is so lacking. What it is really saying is let him come and keep coming to me and drink and keep drinking. He who believes and keeps believing in me, as the Scripture has said, from his innermost being shall flow streams of living water. What is it to come? It's just to trust, to turn, some of you, is, even as I've been talking, you've been saying, you know what? My career has totally gotten in my way, my family. Or I'm an idol, I'm an idolater of my own body and my health and my diet or whatever. And I spend my time just, just can't, can't get enough of thinking about that and doing that. Or I'm way too invested in this thing, way underinvested here. What do I do? Turn and trust. That's it. Why? 
We're built for satisfaction, and he's happy to give it. As an aside, right, there's a, a rich joy to be found in the good gifts of God if we can receive them as supplements. They're good. They're beautiful. They're good. We want to receive them. We're made for enjoying those things in secondary manners of satisfaction. But if we don't have the source of satisfaction first, those things will own us. They will own us either in like we will just long to get something we don't have or we'll be fearful that what we do have gets taken away or we'll be bitter that something did get taken away that we did have. Okay. Personal satisfaction. Secondly, community glorification. I'm not just making pastor words up here, okay? Trust me. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Now, this is a call to a nation that seems cast off. Remember, this is the context is exile. And what the Lord is saying is you return to me, and I will restore you to this original promise I made to your patriarch David. Right? You you. You get restoration if you just turn back. Verse 5, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and the nation and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now, you can take if you have a pen and your Bible, in, in verse 5 where it says, Behold, you shall call a nation, you can write sing, singular. It was plural before this. We don't know this, right, in English because it's we have to say you all to have a plural you, which... I don't do as a northerner. Um, Behold, you individual. Now, who's that talking about? It's talking about the suffering servant again, the Messiah. So I will, you will call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. So who is the nation the suffering servant knew? Israel. What's the nation that he did not know? The Gentiles. So what this is saying is that uh, you will call the Gentiles, and they will run to you. That's good news, I think, for every single person here who are not Jewish, like you all Gentiles, right? We are the unwashed Gentiles, and we love Jesus. Why? Because uh, of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So on this side of the cross, we see what happens. We see Jesus as beautiful. Oh, my goodness. His life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension power, and we see the Holy Spirit opens our eyes like, that's the one I want to run to, and we've run to him. You've done that, or you're invited to that, or the scripture says, come, come and get it. You, you've run to him. It's happened billions of times in history because he's been glorified. And the people run to him, but that's not all. It looks like we don't just run and enjoy that, but we get to share in it. Now, this gets unfolded a little bit later in Jesus' own ministry. I put this in your insert from John 17. This is Jesus last night. He's praying for, just the, for the disciples and those who will believe in them him through their word, which is us. Jesus says, I do not ask for these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. I know that's a word scramble right there, but Jesus is saying, I'm giving them glory, and part of that glory is them knowing how they're loved by you the same way you love me. I'm glorifying them. 
So Jesus can work in spite of his people, and I'm thankful that he does. The design is for him, as the glorified one, to create a community that's increasingly being glorified and for the people in the world to say, I want in on that. As this community embodies what it is to be part of this kingdom with this king, they become beautified, they become glorified, and people say, I want to move toward that. But you can see how this would happen if, if we get the satisfaction thing right. right. So for instance, if our satisfaction is not found in being right, we can be a community that's less argumentative. If our satisfaction, and I, I'm sorry, New City leans into this pretty well. I know that, but I just, um, let's reflect on this. If, if our satisfaction is not found in having power, we can be less politically sensitive. Right? We can have people in our congregation have different political opinions. Now, I know we live in a world that says, yeah, you're not allowed to do that. Because this is the absolute most important thing in the history of humanity. And we say, actually, we have a king. We have a king, so I want to listen to you and understand and learn from you. I don't have to have power over you. My team doesn't have to have ultimate power because my king has ultimate power. If satisfaction is not found in winning, we can be less competitive. If satisfaction is not found in looking good, we can be non-defensive. When something's pointed out about us that is less than flattering, we can say, it's actually probably worse than that, let me tell you. If satisfaction is not found in keeping as much as possible, we have a generous community. If it's not found in control, keeping everything under control, we can take ourselves far less seriously. We don't have to be so serious and grave. We laugh about ourselves. There's a lot to laugh about. Uh, If satisfaction is not found in being smart, we can be humble and learn and be curious. If it's not found in the approval of others, we can be a truth-telling community. Whether it's hard truth, challenging truth, or loving truth, that's fine. If satisfaction is not found in being perfect, we can tell the truth about ourselves and receive the truth about ourselves. No big deal. So you can see how, like, get the satisfaction in Jesus thing with all of the Wholeness, love, acceptance, cleansing, embrace, freedom, covering, from shame, significance, security, place in this world, and hope for the future, and a million other things. Wow, that over time, that creates a community that in spite of itself is being glorified and beautified. What's the way into this? The good news is we have real agency. There's a call here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What's the solution? Turn, come back, seek the Lord. And then you see that you're in this story that just expands. Israel did not anticipate the way this would unfold in the future. They thought, they, they see all these prophecies about this is the way it is permanently forever or the king returning in his glory, and they think it's all going to happen at one time. That's part of the reason people didn't receive Jesus well when he came on the scene because he was like peace and trans, personal, in transformation of people. And they thought, well, what about the warfare? What about wrapping this all up? Um, they, they were misreading the Scripture a little bit. So what we need to know is the prophets in the Old Testament, the way they prophesied about the future was in a way that, 
it, it brought the way future and the little bit future together. If you want to be really smart, you just write down the phrase prophetic foreshortening and drop it in a conversation. And people think, wow, that person's really out of that. Why would they say that? Okay. Prophetic foreshortening is this uh, description of the way the prophecies in the Old Testament work. And you can think of it like a, if you're way far away from a mountain range, you see two mountains beside each other, you know, they're just, they're in the same mountain range, they're all right on top of each other. But that's from a long ways away. When you get up close, you realize, oh, they're not really that close together. You get closer and you may go up the first mountain, you get to the top and you realize that second mountain is a long ways away. Now that I'm on top of the first mountain, and if I were going to hike there, it would take me a long, several days to do that. And there's this huge valley, right? So you got one mountain and a huge valley and a second mountain. But from a long ways away, it looks like the same. It's, from a long ways away, it's foreshortened. And you, since it's the prophet's doing it, it's prophetic foreshortening, right? Now we're all smarter. And um, uh, the first mountain is the coming of Jesus. The second mountain is the return of Christ. The valley in between, that's where we live right now. Right? And so when the, Old, and when the Old Testament prophets saw these things like forever, you know, they thought, oh, the, the restoration comes the moment the Messiah comes. The Messiah comes and he says, no, I'm beginning a work that works in and through humanity and with humanity in partnership until the time I return and restore all things. They weren't anticipating that. And the Lord says, oh, that's okay. I don't do things like you anticipate. <laughs> Verse 8, for my thoughts are actually not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So I work in ways in history you were not anticipating. By the way, he still does. And in our own personal lives. Uh, sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it doesn't seem all that effective to us. Yet he assures us that things are on the right path and moving forward. Verse 10. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. As we mentioned last week, from the Calvary, we have Jesus, a singular person, to now you have two billion followers of Christ who name the name of Christ without getting into how serious is that. Um, that seems like massive growth. But over 2,000 years, that's actually very small growth. About 0.27% per year. Not much. It's slow. Less than 1% per year. Okay. It just keeps going. Like the water comes down from the sky. It's like seasonal. Like causes things to grow up. It's hard to see like if you thin slice it. If you step back like, whoa, where did this forest came, come from? It happened over years. Look at what's happened in the family of God over years. You're part of a story that just keeps moving forward, sustained by another. And he's available to us, this one who sustains the story. In the Look, I know our stories are marked by dissatisfaction and despair and discouragement and hardship and pain. And we don't want to deny any of that. But what we want to say in the middle of that is the one who says, I am your primary satisfaction. Come and drink. Come and eat. Come and believe. And he promises a future of more, and he puts his own name on it. Verse 12, you shall go out in joy 
and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of a thorn bush shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That's the prophetic foreshortening there. But that is the story we're in. A story where he says, you're made for satisfaction, and I'm giving you the source. And just in case, just in case we're not convinced that God is a God who invites us to satisfaction, at the last chapter of the last book, and the last part of the last chapter and the last book, we hear this in Revelation twenty-two seventeen: the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, come. There's always, there's always more. There, we never need the thirst. Why is that? You know why. Jesus himself goes to the cross in our place. And it says in John 19, to fulfill all Scripture, Jesus says these two words, I thirst so that we may never need to say those words ever. We need never thirst. We may always find satisfaction in him. That is part of the reason we go to the communion table every single week. This is not just looking back. It is looking back to what Christ has done. It is looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it is looking around right now at the one who stands in heaven and gives grace to his people, communicating to us over and over again, I am your satisfaction. And when you've been seeking other things, Turn, turn. This table is open for those who know Christ by faith. If that is you, this is for you, and we want to invite you to come. I'm going to pray.